Welcome one and all. This is the Critical Care Commute Podcast. 20 minutes, just the facts, where we tease apart science, opinion, and marketing. I am joined by my dear friend, very valued colleague, Leon Baker. And I'm, of course, joined by mentor and colleague, Peter Brindley. We both live and work in Western Canada. We're both transplants to this fascinating place that brings, I think, a unique aspect to critical care. One of extreme distance, extreme meteorology, and at times extreme culture. And so our first season, we're going to highlight this lovely part of the world. Keep it down to 20 minutes and give you at least one take-home point for each of the digits on your right hand. Exactly. So without any further ado, let's get cracking. Well, hello, everyone, and thanks again for joining us on uh, the Critical Care Commute podcast. We are incredibly fortunate today to have none other than Dr. Sean Bagshaw with us to discuss renal replacement therapy in the intensive care unit. Absolutely. We've got a big fish on the line. Uh, I'm going to introduce Sean and then Sean can introduce himself. But Sean is a friend. He's a colleague. He is the professor and chair of our department. He is the Canada Research Chair in Critical Care Nephrology. His CV makes a very convenient doorstep. It's enormous and well celebrated. And uh, there's no better man to, t- to talk about renal replacement than Sean. Thank you, Sean. Thanks very much, Leon. Thanks, Peter, for the opportunity to join you today. Yeah, so I think right off the bat, um, I'd like to begin with Start AKI. So, Dr. Bagshaw, in 30 seconds or less, and as Churchill used to say, bottom line up front, what was the trial about and why was it needed? Well, Start AKI was uh, something that sort of arose in my clinical practice when I was a trainee, and it was 10 years of culminating work to get to the final trial. But the crux of the question was, you know, in patients who are critically ill, who have acute kidney injury, who don't have what we consider an urgent, potentially life-threatening complication associated with AKI, what's the optimal time to initiate renal replacement therapy in these patients? Should we get on with it? Should we do it quickly? Should we do it accelerated? Uh, or can we watch and wait? And, and that was really the crux of the question of START AKI. So the trial, as you, as you may know, was a multinational collaborative effort recruiting patients in 15 countries in 168 centers, uh, randomized approximately 3,000 patients to a strategy of accelerated initiation of renal replacement therapy versus a standard sort of watch and wait approach to initiation of renal replacement therapy amongst critically ill patients with severe acute kidney injury. And so in short, the outcome? Yeah, the main findings of the trial are that, you know, first, we found no difference in 90-day all-cause mortality, which was the primary endpoint. And this was a, rep- a robust endpoint uh, across a number of sensitivity analysis. The second major finding really was that we found greater renal replacement therapy dependence at 90 days amongst those patients who had been allocated to the accelerated strategy. And again, this was a robust finding in a a series of sensitivity analyses. The third important finding really was that there was a greater occurrence of adverse events amongst those allocated to the accelerated strategy. And we found that this was probably driven largely by episodes of hemodynamic instability. And then the final finding, which I think warrants some discussion, was that 38% of all patients allocated to the standard strategy 
did not go on to receive renal replacement therapy. So this, to some extent, may have some implications for for resources and or dialysis provision in critical care settings. Thank you so much. Um, With that, let's pivot to renal replacement therapy in the ICU, the nuts and bolts. That's a darn good introduction we have going here. There's a lot of people going to want to know, as you say, the nuts and bolts, the where, when, how, and what have you. I was taught as a med student AEIOU for renal replacement therapy, acidemia, electrolytes, ingestions, fluid overload, and uremia that you can't solve other ways. Has that changed, Sean, or did START AKI move the dial on that? Yeah, good question. I mean, those are sort of the classic complications that you look for in patients who have acute kidney injury in the context of their critical illness. The question is whether any one of those or a combination thereof, you know, is sufficient to pull the trigger and say, let's initiate renal replacement therapy. You know, as you know, some of those can be medically managed. Uh, in the Akiki trial done, the multi-center French um, clinical trial that looked at this, they actually showed quite clearly, if you look at in the supplement, that you know patients who were allocated to their delayed strategy were more likely to receive diuretics to manage fluid, more likely to receive insulin and other interventions to manage potassium, and more likely to receive bicarbonate to actually manage the acidosis associated with acute kidney injury. Was this something that actually you know, diminish the risk of going on to receive renal replacement therapy? Possibly. What I don't know, I think what we don't know from the literature is whether those interventions in and of themselves actually exert a hazard on patients. I would say that there is a large multicenter uh, French trial called the BICAR ICU trial that also looked at this very question around giving bicarb to patients with acidosis and lactic acidosis in the ICU. And the subgroup of patients with AKI in that in that study suggested that there was a decreased utilization of renal replacement therapy and mortality. So there, there, there is some sort of question around, can we medically intervene and watch and wait for a period of time? But I worry that there is a point of diminishing returns, that start AKI and the other clinical trials that suggest that a delayed or standard strategy may be acceptable in the short term uh, is not the sort of final call on it all. Let's, let's be provocative. Uh, your thoughts on ICU versus nephrology-led dialysis. Who should be doing it? Does it matter? Well, I think it matters. But I think the issue that I would contend with is that, you know, intensivists are experts in critical illness, multi-organ failure, multi-organ support and management. Nephrologists might be more organ-specific in their thinking. They're experts not only on the kidney and all aspects of kidney disease, but they're clearly experts on the dialysis, the physiology, the, the biomechanical aspects of, uh, of dialysis provision. And, you know, some expertise on both sides of that fence um, probably have an important role in the management of some of these really complex patients in the ICU. I know you want to be controversial, but, you know, my sort of fence-setting stand a little bit is that uh, the ideal would be, um, you know, having both services engaged in the care of these complex patients. The worst case scenario would be having intensivists who know little about dialysis prescribing it or nephrologists who know absolutely nothing about intensive care trying to prescribe dialysis in these patients. Some compromise, uh, some sort of, you know, happy medium needs to occur, uh, ideally, I think, moving forward. And Leon, that's why he's the chairman. Did you see that diplomacy there? Magnificent. Over to you. (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. I just want to add to that, though, Peter. I mean, one comment that's really important is that if it's just ICU, 
right? These patients have severe acute kidney injury. They get put on dialysis. They, they're supported for a period of time with extracorporeal support. They recover or don't, and then they're handed over. And it's ideal to have the seamless transition of these patients to nephrology and nephrology services as they leave the ICU. Even if they're not receiving dialysis, we know that there's implications downstream of having had a severe episode of acute kidney injury for long-term kidney health and kidney survival. And so we probably, in ICU, don't do a great job at being able to transition that problem to nephrology services or the community. And I think that's something that we have to reconcile. And I think that's a great point to highlight. In fact, let's make it a take-home point. Get your nephrologist involved early and have lots of dialogue because, as you say, both have expertise. Over to you, Liam. Yeah. <clears throat> if you consider the mode of renal replacement therapy in the intensive care unit and some of the evidence base around it, I know in 2017 there was a meta-analysis on this. No real mortality benefit over time. Um, no difference in renal recovery but that some hemodynamic parameters, perhaps mean arterial pressure and so on, in the CRRT group was better. What are your thoughts on, on, on picking these modes? Any comment on the evidence base? And, and, and practically, what do, you, what do you do when you consider which mode you're going to use? So, you know, the, the controversy around what's the ideal modality to support critically ill patients with acute kidney injury is older than I am. In fact, was debated, you know, more than 40 years ago with the advent of continuous therapies, whereby intermittent therapies, you know, in a conventional sense, just could not be delivered because of intractable hemodynamic instability and, you know, failure to deliver the, to deliver the therapy. So my, my take on it is pretty simple in the sense that I think the ICU should be able to offer all modalities of support that really, you know, suits the specific patient's clinical context, clinical physiology, and, you know, phase of illness at a given time. There are clear scenarios, in my view, where continuous renal replacement therapy is likely the best initial therapy. But alternatively as well, I think we have to recognize that just as, as likely, there are other scenarios where there's no doubt that an intermittent modality with a really high efficiency clearance is absolutely the, the best or most optimal additional modality. And I would think of things like, you know, overdoses or poisonings or dialyzable toxins, et cetera. Dialysis, uh, intermittent dialysis is the choice there for sure. I think, you know, we go back to some of our patients who are critically ill, who are hemodynamically unstable and supported with vasoactives, who have multi-organ dysfunction, who may have other organ support platforms at play. You know, they're on a ventilator or they're on ECLS or something along those lines. You know, the preponderance of evidence hasn't shown a survival benefit between one or the other, at least initially being uh, prescribed. But I have a lot of problems in trying to interpret that. Uh, you know, I have a lot of challenges or I'm concerned about the interpretation of those trials head to head, many of them being, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus years old. I think the real question is, is there essentially a difference uh, with initial modality applied in these sick and otherwise vulnerable patients with acute kidney injury and long-term kidney health and survival? Is there differences, if you like, in the recovery to dialysis independence amongst patients who are initially prescribed continuous versus intermittent therapies. And I think, you know, even though clinical trials haven't really sort of shown a clear difference in this, those trials relatively small and not really showing a lot of outcomes to evaluate. Lots of problems with these trials, of course. But at the same time, 
I would say that uh, preponderance of observational data, which is the next default we have to look at, is suggesting that there may be some differences in long-term you know, kidney recovery and independence from dialysis amongst these patients who get, at least as their initial therapy, continuous therapies in the ICU. I'll jump back in if I may. Sean, you've said we should be able to administer the individualized dialysis that the patient needs. We should have all the modalities at our disposal. Any comments on SLED, the sort of Goldilocks dialysis halfway between CRRT and IHD, if indeed that is how it should be regarded? Yeah, well, my view really is that the provision of dialysis, again, uh, all modalities available in the ICU. If you think about the trajectory and phases of illness that a patient goes through, a patient comes in with septic shock from pneumonia, on a ventilator, on vasoactives, acute kidney injury that's multifactorial, on renal support, starting on CRT. In those first 24, 48 hours, you know, uh, realistically speaking, you're not going to awaken and, and mobilize and walk that patient around the unit. So the issues around, you know, the, the drawbacks of CRT, which have largely been centered around, you know, we can't mobilize patients on it, is probably a moot point in that ac- acute context. If patients are now becoming more awakened, they're weaning off their vasopressors, they're a little more stable, but not off the ventilator, they still need renal support, I could see a natural transition towards, yeah, you know what, let's provide a, a low-efficient, prolonged intermittent therapy that still allows us to deliver the therapy with our goals in mind, including our flu balance goals or whatnot. And maybe you transition to that, uh, you know, a few days down the road. Patients who don't recover still at some point are going to be looking to transition out of the ICU. You've liberated them from the ventilator, they're off their vasoactives, their organ injury is stabilized and starting to recover. Maybe they're still dialysis dependent. Those are patients that you start to look to transition to more intermittent therapies. But I do worry that dialysis in and of itself can cause harm, can cause injury, can propagate either kidney injury or other organ injury through the provision of systemic stress as you, you know, circulate someone's blood through an extracorporeal circuit. So we have to be very mindful in every stage how we actually prescribe our therapy to minimize the harm. It's really about support and facilitating recovery and minimizing that harm. And I think, you know, we probably have to appreciate that more than we do. So with that in mind, let's go back to CRT for a second. Where is the great debate about hemodialysis versus hemofiltration and the dosing of dialysis? Yeah, I think, you know, we have, so let's just speak to intensity initially. I think, you know, we have two large clinical trials and a series of other small clinical trials that have really shown there's no incremental benefit in terms of survival with a higher intensity, higher dose prescription of, you know, continuous renal replacement therapy or any dialysis therapy in the ICU. And so we've sort of gravitated to a default around, you know, in CRT, it's around 25 mils per kilo per hour and, you know, intermittent therapies, 1.2, KT over 1.2, you know, every other day, so to speak couple things to point out that are really important here. One is that is speaking about solute only. We are not speaking about fluid. Those trials did not focus on fluid. They focused on solute. So what we're talking about here is dose for solute, right, and solute clearance. It's clear that a higher intensity is not shown to have any benefit. Even the trials, uh, Peter, that looked at really high volume hemofiltration did not show a survival benefit. So there's probably some diminishing returns and adverse effects related to that that we're not aware of. So at, at minimum right now, you know, we have a sort of floor that we can, you know, prescribe the dose at. 
that doesn't mean that as clinicians we we have we we're not mindful to the the changing physiology and metabolic profile of patients. Sometimes they might not need a little higher. Sometimes they could tolerate a little lower. But we have generally strong evidence around what should be the baseline. So that's what I would say with respect to dose. Um, but it's solute. When you talk about renal and you talk about ATN, those two trials looked at solute. The second thing then you wanted to ask me about was um, hemofiltration versus hemodiafiltration versus hemodialysis. There's been some small trials that have compared that. And on mass, you really, they're not showing survival advantages, which is not necessarily unexpected. I guess what we have seen is that, you know, patients who are allocated to continuous hemodiafiltration seem to have, you know, longer uh, filter lifespans and less likely to lose their filter sets. Whereas just hemofiltration, where it's all dependent on, you know, gradients across the membrane, it's more likely to get caking of protein and other things where you get earlier filter loss. So to some extent, um, you know, that's generally where our practice has gone in our institution, where the default now is hemodiafiltration to prolong filter lifespans. Keeping things practical, um, how do we decide on fluid targets, fluid management? Any any tips? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the next really. If you guys are going to ask me about what's up now, uh, this is going to be the next phase that you're going to start to see. Clinical trials are going to start to focus on fluid man- fluid management strategies in critical illness in general, but also I would say, particularly amongst patients who are receiving renal support. Uh, how do we manage that ultrafiltration? How do we target it? Uh, how to, how do we know how fast, how slow to remove it? Those are questions that are not deeply seated in in evidence in randomized control trials, and 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 I think those are those are being developed and probably going to be deployed in the next few years. Some observational data, post hoc observational data from trials like renal and others, have suggested that. Things like earlier initiation of renal replacement therapy can better sort of manage fluid balance and result in lower accumulation of fluid over time. However, it doesn't translate into necessarily improved survival. We've shown that in start AKI. In the renal trial, they've suggested, you know, they looked at the rates of ultrafiltration over 24-hour periods of time, and they've really shown that really low and really high rates of ultrafiltration may actually exert some hazard to patients. So what's the Goldilocks in the middle? Uh, not certain, but even with continuous renal replacement therapy, you know, too low or certainly too high can precipitate secondary organ dysfunction and propagate injury and perhaps contribute to hazards of less favorable outcomes for these patients. So, uh, you know, the ultrafiltration and the fluid management is a critical piece that we're missing, you know, high, high level evidence on right now, but it's coming. And we are whipping along. The next question is anticoagulation. How do we do it? What are our options? Well, the, the whole rationale for anticoagulation is really to preserve the extracorporeal circuit, right? Patients who, you know, have frequent uh, disruptions and loss of their circuit uh, are likely to lose blood, more likely to be transfused, et cetera, et cetera. And so you want to avoid all that if at all possible. I think anticoagulation is for the circuit. If you're losing your circuit, I think one sort of tidbit here to remember for, for listeners is that you know, the catheter is a critical element to the whole apparatus of providing high quality and high efficiency renal support in the ICU. If you're losing your circuit, you know, have a look at your catheter to make sure your catheter is not a problem. But anticoagulation, yeah, if you don't anticoagulate, you're not going to have uh, as long a circuit lifespan. I mean, that's clearly been borne out in clinical trials. You know, the average is probably somewhere in the range of 18 to 20 hours with no anticoagulation. 
With heparin, it's a bit longer. Um, and then with citrate, it seems to be even better. So citrate protocols using, you know, citrate as an anticoagulant uh, regionally in the, in the circuit is something that we can do to prolong filtered lifespan. And, you know, in the end, that can translate into some efficiencies uh, and maybe some reductions in costs if you're not losing circuits uh, more frequently. That being said, you know, protocols are in play. Citrate's a little more complex, obviously, uh, but protocols are in play and can be applied very safely. And that's been shown in, in observational studies and clinical trials. The risks of heparin are that, you know, patients can bleed and it's generally systemic. And, you know, there's a small risk of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So, so that's the downside. If patients have an indication for systemic heparin, then that's usually a good choice, of course, right? There was some evidence in the COVID-19 pandemic, as you guys know, that people were trying to uh, use both modalities of anticoagulation, in part because there was concerns about circuit loss in patients who may have had a prothrombotic effect related to COVID-19. I'm not sure if that's truly the case, whether they were thrombophilic and whether they were losing their circuits because of the intrinsic uh, coagulation disorders related to COVID infection or whether there was other factors at play, um, but um, it didn't seem to be, um, you know, all that incrementally beneficial. Yeah. So in general, in ICU, any therapy we start, we also want to think about taking it away. Um, any any tips or tricks in, in deciding on weaning and ultimately stopping renal replacement therapy? Yeah. What's up next? So I would say that we've focused the last 10 or 15 years on when to start but we've actually had a complete sort of paucity of literature, data, evidence from trials on when and how to successfully stop. I would say there's a series of small you know, observational studies that have tried to look at this, but it is a critical knowledge gap that we have in our provision of renal support in the ICU. When to stop? I mean, the first thing you should be asking yourself when you put a patient on renal replacement therapy is, okay, when do we stop? How are we going to focus on getting this patient off? Because patients who remain dialysis dependent have a spectrum of complications downstream and certainly have worse clinical outcomes. So we should be focused on the timely liberation of renal support, just like we do ventilation. What can we use as guidance right now? I would say I have this checklist of things I kind of go through in my head sometimes about, you know, when is patient going to be ready for liberation from renal support. And it has to do with, you know, the phase of critical illness evolving, you know, the resolution of the organ injury, the removal of the stimulus that incited the acute kidney injury, but also some evidence of, you know, uh, improving intrinsic kidney function. And really the only barometer we use for the most part at the bedside is urine output. So if we start seeing patients who have increments in urine output over a 24-hour period, it's a good sign that the kidneys may be starting to you know, take some of the load again in that demand supply mismatch that's occurred and, and why they've gone on to renal replacement therapy in the first place. So the best barometer, in my view, is urine output. And um, if you start seeing patients making urine, then you may be able to titrate or, or tailor back their renal replacement therapy accordingly to give them a, a shot at um, liberation. I mean, one of the questions I'm often asked is, what if we just give them a big blast of furosemide? Will that just kick everything into action and Will these patients be more likely to liberate as a consequence? And I would say um, the short answer to that, based on you know some evidence from randomized trials, is no. Uh, Lasix will not improve kidney function. It will not you know somehow magically help a kidney clear more solute. Uh, it might help you manage volume, and that's about all. 
and so I think it's really important to remember that simply titrating up the Lasix following a, you know, an elective discontinuation of dialysis is not necessarily going to equate with improved probability of recovery. Very good. Uh, Leon, while you prepare for the take-home points, good luck, by the way. There's about 400 of them at this point. <laughs> uh, Sean, had I done the start AKI trial, I would have soon after put on my carpet slippers, sat on the couch, and ended my academic career. It's an incredible undertaking. I don't think that's the case with you. What else should adoring fans know is coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I think we've touched on it a little bit. I think there's, you know, critical care nephrology is an exciting area and there's some huge knowledge gaps right now. I still think we have probably some improvements on our selection of patients with a high probability of non-recovery of kidney function to go on to renal replacement therapy. So I think we're going to see some greater precision work done in who to select and when uh, in the next little while. Um, and I think two things we touched on during the podcast that are important to remember is one, how do we target fluid management and ultrafiltration during the provision of dialysis uh, such that, you know, we, we hit that Goldilocks where we're not, you know, contributing to progressive fluid accumulation in patients and so-called complications related to that. But at the same time, we're also not, you know, making patients relatively or absolutely hypovolemic and contributing to propagation of their ongoing injury. That is going to be something we need to sort out. And there's some clinical trials developing around that in the next little while. So hopefully we'll see some evidence in the next couple of years related to that. And then the final comment we, we focus on a little bit is when and how and you know, do we SOP? How do we decide when to provide a patient with a trial of liberation for immune replacement therapy? I only really focused on the urine output. But there's a, a number of other markers that are sort of being investigated as helping to inform and provide some clinical decision support on the probability of successful liberation from dialysis therapy. Um, so that's something we need to uh, focus on. And I'm hopeful that there's some work being done on that here in Canada. I expect to see some evidence on that in the next couple of years. The final piece really is the legacy of acute kidney injury in the ICU. I think we've not done a very good job as intensivists but also as intensivists and the critical care nephrology community at really following up what happens to these patients. What, what, what is the long-term kidney health effects of, you know, a severe episode of AKI and, and provision of dialysis in the ICU? So hopefully we're going to see um, work coming down the pipeline on that. One small trial led out of Toronto looked at acute kidney injury follow-up clinics that really didn't show. It showed that it's, it's, it's really a difficult thing to do. So I'm not sure we found the ideal medium to follow the kidney health of these patients yet in partnership with our colleagues from nephrology. Fantastic. Leon, it's summary time. I'll go first. Involve your nephrologists early. Don't start dialysis too soon, but equally many of the traditional indications still stand. They do, but on that, it's not really clear whether the medical management is associated with uh, harm, and, and that's certainly being investigated the choice of renal replacement therapy being intermittent or continuous really depends on the indication. In general, the sicker the patient, you're more likely to use a continuous mode. In regards to the intensity, two large trials, as you mentioned, but we, we, we kind of landed on a more intense mode does not confer any benefit. What else did we talk about? This, this was, this, there was so much. Um, fluid management. <laughs> Um, it, it unfortunately still comes down to the Goldilocks method. There's harm to removing too much fluid and there's harm on, in, in keeping too much fluid on board. Anticoagulation, definitely needed, but it's 
It's to save our circuits. Uh, heparin's good, citrate's better. And then stopping renal replacement therapy is, is, a, is a field that is under investigation still. Urine output being a great marker, but uh, some other markers being uh, under investigation as we speak. And I think a, a great practical point that you mentioned, Dr. Bagshaw, furosemide does not magically fix your kidneys, but it can help with fluid management. And I'm sure I missed a few. Well, you guys, you know what? Uh, maybe in another year when uh, a lot of evidence emerges on some of these controversial topics, we can uh, revisit this podcast and update what we already know and how that's going to impact the practice of critical care nephrology uh, in our ICUs. Which allows me to do the thanks, the goodbyes, and I'm going to slip in a happy holidays, Merry Christmas, given the timing of this recording. Thank you so much, Professor Dr. Sean Bagshaw. And thank you, Leon. And, and by the way, thanks anyone and everyone that listens to this. Tell one friend and we'll slowly grow this acorn to a great oak tree. That's right. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Backshaw. Thanks, everyone. 